Welcome to the Saxophone History Podcast, a thoughtful, researched, and slightly irreverent look at the history of our instrument. I'm your host, Andrew D. Meyer. The other day, I was driving to a gig with another alto player, and we were just sort of casually listening to some Cannibal Adderley tracks on shuffle in the car. Mercy, Mercy, Mercy came on, as you might expect, and I chuckled to myself and said, crazy story about this album, right? My, uh, my colleague had no idea what I was talking about, and it got me thinking that maybe this story isn't as well known as I had always thought it to be. It's going to be kind of a short episode today, but a fascinating tale nonetheless. We're going to go through the true story of the Cannibal Adderley Quintet album, Mercy, 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 Live at the Club. If you don't know this album, you must have never been a teenage jazz fan. It's a classic. The title track, Mercy, 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 reached number two on the Soul chart and number 17 on the Billboard Hot 100 chart in 1967. The album features, alongside Cannibal, Nat Adderley on cornet, Joe Zawinul, who wrote Mercy, Mercy, Mercy on electric piano, Victor Gaskin on bass, and Roy McCurdy on drums. It was recorded and released under something of a false pretense in 1966 by Capitol Records. To get started, I'd like to read a couple of paragraphs from E. Rodney Jones' liner notes from the original release of the album. Quote, In the 20s, 30s, and 40s, the Club Delisa was one of the swingingest spots in Chicago's South Side. It shut down for a while. A little over a year ago, my friend and fellow DJ Purvis Spann and I had the pleasure of reopening it under our own management as the club. And behold, it's wailing again. It never wailed more than it did on the five nights Cannibal, Nat Adderley, Joe Zawinul, and the other musicians in the quintet played their first stand for us. The first, we hope, of many. They played like Blue Smoke. They played like sweet preaching. They played like nobody was ever going to go without honey butter again. The club seats 800. Cannonball drew in better than 1,200 customers a night, and we were seating the overflow out in the lounge. Everybody went away gassed. That quintet of his is five giants, all climbing up the beanstalk at once. Cannonball, I call him Cannon Bird because he says things musically in his own way like nobody has said things in his own way since Charlie Parker is the tremendous alto sax talent of our day. Nat can cut anybody with his horn. Vic Gatsky on bass and Roy McCurdy on drums are the greatest. And how about that Joe Zawinul? An Austrian fellow you'd think would be at home playing pretty waltzes, and he comes here to the States and lays down jazz like he is, like he was the fellow invented it. Uh, I'll skip forward a couple of paragraphs. The last paragraph uh, reads, quote, Capitol Records came into the club one night before showtime, strung their equipment all over, and took a full evening's performance down on tape. That was one of those great and providential blessings of history. What if there'd been no publisher around to provide a typesetter when Tolstoy wrote War and Peace? No Sistine Chapel when Michelangelo got itchy to paint a ceiling? What my friend Cannonball did at the club is now preserved forever, and it'll be around a long, long time as among the definitive works of a master. I'm proud the club played a part in it." 
The thing about the story presented in these liner notes is, well, it isn't true. Instead of being recorded at the club in Chicago, like the liner notes claim, this iconic record was actually recorded some 2,000 miles away at Capitol Records in Los Angeles. Here's the real story behind the album. WVON's DJ E. Rodney Jones, who was a massive figure in the R&B radio scene, had opened the club that year and, being friends with Cannibal Adderley, asked the saxophonist to help him promote the club. Basically, it's a win-win for both parties, right? Cannonball records a live set at the club and releases it. Jones gives it tons of airplay, which is obviously great for Cannonball, and he promotes his new club by saying, like, you know, this is the kind of thing going on nightly at the club. Cannonball, who was known to be a savvy businessman and also known to be very generous, uh, just agreed. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, okay, so it wasn't recorded in a live club, but it still sounds like a live record. There are people reacting and yelling things out and, and clapping and all that. So, like, what's that all about if the, Capitol, if, the, if the record was made at Capitol Studios? Apparently, it was a bit of a hoax engineered by Cannonball, with assistance from the album's producer, David Axelrod. For whatever reason, Cannonball couldn't do the live recording at the club, you know, probably just like touring schedule or, or maybe the club wasn't ready or, or whatever. So he basically came up with the idea of making the record in front of a live audience at Capitol Studios and then just saying they recorded it at the club in Chicago. Instead of recording the album in a club, they basically turned the massive Studio A at Capitol Records into a club. The official story is that Axelrod assembled a crowd of invited guests who were mostly just like ordinary people. It, it wasn't a crowd of uh, like record industry types, you know. And he set up a bar and basically just threw a party in the studio with the band playing. I've heard other versions of this story um, saying that uh, they were like basically just standing outside the main doors to Capitol Records and like pulling people in off the street for the recording. But I kind of doubt that one's true. If you think about it, it's kind of a genius way to make a live album. I mean, after all, it truly is a live recording, even if the story is kind of phony. It was recorded in front of a real live audience. I suppose the advantage to doing it uh, this way is that you know the sound is going to be excellent, right? You've got all this great recording gear, which really wouldn't be practical in a live club setting. You would also have the opportunity to do multiple takes if something went weird on a track, which you really couldn't do in a live club in front of a paying audience. Incidentally, it seems really unlikely to me that the band uh, did any additional takes on this record because I, I just think they would have been released by now and, and they're not out there to my knowledge. I mean, you know how it is with these like legacy artists years after they're dead and don't have control over their releases. Labels just pump out all the old discarded takes and, and mixes that never got released originally. So I think if they had done anything additional, we'd, we'd know about it by now. It makes total sense to me. Get a great band, put them in a legendary studio, bring in a bunch of people and get them all liquored up. Instant masterpiece, right? This was a formula that David Axelrod had had success with earlier that year with Lou Rawls, recording his live album in much the same way. In fact, if you listen to both albums back to back, it's really clear that they're using the same formula. The audience sounds pretty much the same, and for all we know, many of the same people were probably at both recordings. Like, Axelrod probably just called all his friends and stuff, you know? In the original liner notes to the album, Jones claims that Cannonball brought in 1,200 people to, club, to the club, which had a capacity for 800. Obviously, we know this to be a lie, as the recording didn't happen there anyway. 
but I would guess that the number of people at the Capitol session was far fewer. For one thing, it doesn't sound like a huge crowd on the record, though it does sound like a pretty good party. Um, Studio A at Capitol Records is a big room, um, one that at 1,500 square feet can accommodate orchestras of up to about 50 musicians. Uh, Frank Sinatra was the first artist to record at Capitol Studios in 1956, and the space was designed to hold large groups of people and to be used in, in like really versatile ways. One interesting side note to this story is that Cannonball did actually record some tracks at the club uh, that same year, but only a 45 uh, with two tracks, Money in the Pocket and Hear Me Talking to You, were uh, actually released in 1966. In 2005, Capitol released the whole, uh, the whole live recording under the title Money in the Pocket. For the record, it's a killer album. Uh, there's lots of his like really high energy, funky, hard bop kind of stuff. Uh, a really lovely version of Stardust, and even his take on some of the music from Fiddler on the Roof, uh, which he he actually put out a whole album of that, I think, separately. So weirdly, if you want to hear the Cannibal Adderley Quintet live at the club, uh, don't listen to the Live at the Club album, listen to Money in the Pocket. Or actually, you should probably just listen to them both, because they're both great. To make things even more complicated, the live recording that would eventually be released as Money in the Pocket was recorded in March of 1966. Mercy, 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 Live at the Club was recorded in October of 1966. So in a way, there wasn't really a need for the hoax. Capitol could have just released the rest of the tracks that were actually recorded at the club and, and not even bothered with, you know, Mercy, Mercy, Mercy. I mean, we're all grateful that this album was made. It's an all-time classic. It just seems kind of like silly that they went to all the trouble of faking it as a live recording at the club. It's easy to see why Mercy, Mercy, Mercy became such a huge hit. I mean, for one thing, it's a banger of a tune, right? It's got that infectious combination of laid back and driving bluesy feel. When Cannonball hits his high C and the B section of the melody, it's like like an explosion of tone and feeling. And then you get that, that cool little like four bar wrap up at the end of the head. What's kind of unusual about the tune is for arguably one of his best known recordings, neither Cannonball nor his brother Nat solo on the tune. In fact, it was written by keyboardist Joe Zawinul. The lack of horn solos, the groove, the pacing, it's a real masterclass in restraint, and it makes the burners on the album, like Hippadelphia and Sacco Woe, really stand out as such. Another side note, the original Club de Lisa was a super interesting and important club on the south side of Chicago. Flying in the face of both Prohibition and, and Jim Crow, the Club de Lisa was sort of like Chicago's version of the Cotton Club. And it was likely, likely the most important club in the city when it was opened in 1933. Uh, and it featured like review shows with singers and dancers and live music and was home to early jazz and vaudeville performance uh, in the city. For a while, the club was open 24 hours a day and a short listing of some of the people who played at the original Club de Lisa includes Fletcher Henderson, Count Basie, Sun Ra, Joe Williams, Earl Washington, uh, Albert Ammons, and, and like loads more. There's a film about the club that's currently looking for funding, and uh, they have a pretty cool website with a bunch of like great info about the club at clubdelisa.net. 
if you're a person with money to blow, maybe, I don't know, funding this project could be a cool opportunity for you. <laughs> to sum it all up, a quote from Michael Kuskuna. Quote, The club didn't last, but the album remains a jazz classic and one of the greatest uncompromising crossover successes in the history of this music. Unquote. So that's it for today. Uh, just a short, but I think really interesting story about one of the most iconic albums in jazz. I'm definitely going to do a deep dive into the life and times of Cannibal Adderley someday, but that's going to be a major project, so stay tuned. As always, sources for this and all other episodes can be found at my website, andrewdmeyer.com. Thanks very much for listening to the Saxophone History Podcast, and please like and subscribe to make sure you don't miss any, any of these fascinating stories about the most interesting people in the history of our instrument. Mm-hmm.